Gladys, welcome to the show. We are going to talk today about your book, The Well-Lived Life. And before we dive into the book, this may be hard for you to do, harder than any guest I've ever had. But do you want uh -oh. to give the listeners a brief bio of your background? <laughs> My whole background, all 102 years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's why it's definitely going to be more challenging than the average guest. But what are some of the highlights that you want to throw at people? Well, I was born and raised in India, in the jungles of India. And kind of a fun thing, my mother went into labor with me at the Taj Mahal. You know, that's, oh, wow. I think that's she cool. was kind of a drama queen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so my life started that way. And there were, you know, all kinds of ups and downs and go-rounds. But I spent the most of my early childhood in the, uh, with, my parents were medical missionaries and they went out, uh, to India to take their medical work to the people in North India, where the, where that aspect of the Presbyterian church was working. So we lived in tents out in the jungle. My parent, my father and my older brothers were hunters because the uh, tigers and the leopards really did attack the village people and the village people had no ways of protecting themselves. So I have a tiger on my wall that my dad shot and a leopard on my uh, bookcase that I shot and different things like that that I guess pretty weird but seemed normal. <laughs> while, you were, while you were in the jungle at that time or, or in that area of India, that's where you say for the first secret, you found your juice uh -huh. and it was while your dad and brothers were out hunting and you and your mom and uh, had an experience with with an elephant that uh -huh. uh, came into the village do you want to share that with the listeners yeah that was an experience that i remember well i must have been about uh, oh eight or something like that age wise but anyway my mother was she was a physician too she was an osteopath so she was carrying on the medical work while my uh, brothers and my dad were out on a hunt. And all of a sudden, a mahout, uh, elephant boy, man who took care of the elephants, came walking into the tent to the camp. And uh, he said to my mother, this is my Maharaja's favorite elephant. And he wants you to look at him and see if you can help him. My mother said, well, I don't know how to take care of elephants. And uh, he said, you're a doctor, aren't you? And she said, yes. He says, you take care of elephants. And she, was, so she said, okay. <laughs> and so she did. She walked up to the elephant, and this huge elephant was just standing there. A couple weeks prior to this, the, the Maharaja had been on a hunt, and the elephant had stepped on a bamboo stump and his, his right, no, no, his left front foot had never healed up, no matter what they did to try and see what they could do. So my mother just started talking to the elephant and patting its trunk and saying, now listen, be a good boy and let me see what I can do. And my mother was about five foot one. So here's this huge <laughs> elephant. And she's talking to the elephant is standing perfectly still. And she realized that he probably had some foreign body in his foot that had not been removed. So she asked me to go and get a basin of potassium permanganate, which I knew how to fix, and a, a syringe and the forceps. And so I got her the tools that she needed. And she began for, with her uh, forceps feeling around in the, in the elephant's foot and found that there was about a six inch piece of bamboo stump that was in the foot, his foot. So she worked around that and uh, removed it all the time. She's doing that. She's talking to the elephant and telling him she is probably hurts, but 
please hold still and I'll get this out. And she's talking in Hindustani, so the elephant knew, understood her. You <laughs> she was talking in Hindustani, so that, that was a good thing. And I understood what she was saying. So the elephant was perfectly still. And she removed the, the piece of wood, of bamboo, and then took the syringe and irrigated the whole aspect of the foot there and cleaned that all out. Uh, applied some ointment and so on and told the Mahout what to do when he took the elephant back and so on. Uh, you know, just patted the elephant on the leg and said, now we'll see what, how well this goes and, and just talk to it some more. And the, uh, the elephant man, the Mahout is the name for the uh, elephant boy, let my sister and my brother and me uh, walk up to the, uh, well. I was already there. And they walk up. And the elephant picked us up with his trunk and put us on a, his back. And th you know there were a whole bunch of little Indian kids running around, and we had a couple of those around too. And we went down to the Ganges. Our camp was on the edge of the Ganges, and the, the elephant took us into the Ganges and got some water his snout and just uh, sp sprayed us really good. We had a wonderful time. And then the, the Mahat took him back to the Maharaja. And the next morning they come back into tent, into camp. And the elephant walked right past his, everybody else, right up to my mother, put a, his hot snout around my a mother and picked her up. And kind of swung around. She patted him on the nose and said, now be a good boy. Let me down, you know. And he put her down and they went on with sheep. So for a week, this elephant was there. We, we kids were having a ball because the elephant would play with us. But my mother took care of that elephant. Just the way she was taking care of all of the people that were coming to her. And to me, that was such a such an inspiration. If you're living, working with life and living processes, you must love it. You know, if you love it and you actually can understand it, no matter whether it's an elephant or a rose bush, these are living parts of our universe and need to be treated like living things and loved. And so I was just knew that that was part of my destiny. I. I had to be able to do this too. And it's amazing reading how many people in your family then and now are doctors. And so that was your juice. That was in the West, we may say you realize that was your purpose. For the listener that's listening, that says to you or says to me, I don't know how to find my juice. I don't know what my purpose or mission is. What do you say to them? What do you say some some ways they can find their juice. What are you looking for? If you're looking for your juice, if you're looking for the light, if you're reaching for the light, if you understand that you're a human being and you have a purpose in this life and you're, you're really trying to find it, you'll find it. If you can't get it yourself, somebody will come along and help you with that because that's the way life works. I kind of think of it like maybe I have a flashlight and I'm walking down my path and I can just go as far as the flash beam of that light takes me. But as I'm walking along quite often, there may be a dim light over to, to the left or to the right. But if I add my light to that light, it increases what that person has and in the way of what is real. And when that happens, their juice gets, it may feel pretty dim and, and like it can, they can hardly move. But if someone else's juice comes and helps them with that, then there's more because that's what they're looking for now. And as you begin to look for it, it comes to you. If you're not looking for it, you'll never see it. In so much of that, and what I loved about the book, Gladys, is, is as, I, as I've gotten a bit older, and, and you're going to say, well, well, no, you're, you're still really young, is I've 
slowly started to put together those connections between the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, and, and realize how it all ties together. And you say that in, in Western medicine, we don't tend to connect our physical issues to our mental or emotional states. We're trained to look at isolated organs or focus on mechanical itch issues such as diet and posture instead of asking patients, what do you think you're holding in your gut or what else in your life isn't working? Can you unpack that one for us and, and maybe give the listeners an example of where you've seen that approach have such a profound impact on someone's life? Well, you know, people come in to see if the doctor and they come in because they're hurting or they have a disease and conventional medicine feels that our purpose is to get rid of diseases and pain. And I don't see it that way because I think both diseases and pain are ways in which our inner physician, the, the, the aspect of our own being that is truly divine and truly in touch with what's going on with, within us as a, an individual person, if we can contact that person, then the healing can begin. Because, you know, when my eldest son became, he was trained as an orthopedic surgeon. And he came through Phoenix on his way down to Del Rio, Texas, to do to practice his his mission, you know. And he said to me on the way down, he said, Mom, you know, I'm real scared. I have all this training and I'm going into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you really have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that you have this amazing training, which is so important, it's not that conventional medicine and holistic medicine are opposites. It's not that at all. It's the, how they work together. Because if you have something that needs to have an orthopedic surgeon work on, you better get an orthopedic surgeon that can do that. Yeah. You don't want somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. But I said, once that you've done your job, then you turn the healing aspect of that over to the, your colleague who is the physician within that patient. Because that's what does the actual healing. And the whole basis of that is that the love that we get, love that we have for ourselves and for life that gives us the juice, which is what actually works with the whole healing process. It's not a single thing. It's not a single idea. It's because what happens when you're your age and what happens when I'm my age are two different things and we're in different places and we're different people. So it's never the same thing, but it, in a, it's always the same thing, you know, in the long run, it's never just one thing that would, well, maybe it does it for some, some, it, I shouldn't say it's never, it's seldom one thing that really turns things around and allows you to overcome an illness or not. But if you don't, that very illness sometimes is the thing that really teaches you the most. Franklin Do Roosevelt was, a, was in pain. He had post-polio syndrome. He was in pain until the day he died but it didn't keep him from being president. He lived with the pain, he lived through it, and he did what, what his soul, his inner physician, told him was his job to do, and he did it. So much to unpack in that, in that one answer, Gladys. And something you hit on that I really wanna 
magnify. You talked about the importance of, so your son is the orthopedic surgeon, but the person who's on the operating table, their own inner healing. And it reminded me when you talked in The Well-Lived Life about, I believe it was the first time you had cancer. And so like, just think about that. The first time there's very, when people are saying that, that's magical in in itself. And you were going in for surgery, but before you went in for your surgery, you mentally rehearsed and had a conversation with yourself and with your cancer and visualized your cancer packing itself up in a suitcase and calling to all of its cancer cell friends and saying, hey, why don't you come get in the suitcase with me? We're about to have surgery and get out of here. And you talked about some of the science that shows that, and I don't want to get this completely wrong, but I think you know where our, where I'm going and that our, our genes, if you will, can react to our visualization or how we talk to them. And it's it reminds me of when they do the tests of, I believe it's water molecules and, and you talk, you play certain sounds outside of the glass and the water molecules will react positively or negatively to the yeah. sounds you're playing. So do, do you want to take that a little over and in the importance of that visualization and that positive talk in the self-love in healing ourselves? It's pivotal because life itself needs to move. And if life stops moving, it dies. So if we understand, if we can uh, work with our minds and our purpose well enough that we understand ourselves well enough and love ourselves well enough, we can actually talk to the cells of our body and have them understand what it is that our purpose is. I mean, it's not that I have these cells floating around and they don't know who they are. They, the, every cell in my body is starts out as a stem cell, grows into whatever part of the body is, you know, whether it's a toenail cell or a nose cell, it knows what it is. It's, it's a conscious living aspect of my body, of your body, of all of our bodies, is created its own universe with this amazing reality that it's alive. These are living, growing cells within our body that we can work with as we understand that they understand what we understand because we're the same. And right, right when you started that answer, you gave me a little chill with the first sentence and you were talking about sort of, if we're not moving forward, we're dying. And, and that's something I've always believed when it comes to learning and growth. And I'm going to fast forward. We'll jump around a little on the secrets. We'll, we'll jump forward to secret five. And secret five is everything is your teacher. Right. And you write that we live our best lives when we approach life with curiosity and a desire to learn from everything. And you believe part of the point of life is to learn, to grow, to evolve in response to our experiences. And I appreciate that because the first name of this podcast was The Pursuit of Learning. And then it, it evolved into The Growth Guide. So learning and growth are, are my passions. And I've always thought the same way to you. The day I stop learning the day I stop growing will be the day that I die and, and learning and growth are a big part of, of my juice on, on my journey, Gladys. So why do, we, why do we both feel that way and how can people change their perspective to have that curiosity to learn and grow? And, and I think one of the important things is you know that we lose our curiosity as we age and the most curious people are children. And we lose it as we grow older. And I think the older we get, the more we lose it. So how can we encourage people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond to keep that love of learning and curiosity so that they can keep moving and growing and and living the life they are meant to? I have five L's that speak to me, sort of help to answer that question. 
which is huge. You know, that's it's a huge question you're asking, and there are no multiple sidewise. But these five L's help me to pull things into perspective, so that it, I'd be able to express what I was understanding about the whole process of life and and so on. And the five. Let me go through these five L's because I think they not only help to visualize, but you know, when we understand something in a lit, written way, our body understands it. So the first L is life. If we're not alive, nothing counts anyway. You know, it doesn't matter. But if we're alive, then the energy of the universe is within us. Within every cell of our body, it's like a a, a seed in the pyramid, uh, who's there for five thousand years or something, and not able to do anything because it's just there. It has the, a shell around it, and it's stuck, and it's not it's not going any, but nothing's happening until love activates it. So love and life are integral aspects of of the whole process of living. They don't function without the other. The two words, as a matter of fact, are the word are the same except for one difference. The life you have an the I, which is a you know, sort of almost a phallic symbol, and the O in love, which is the so you have the sperm and the ovum. When it's the duality of this universe that we're living in that actually, when it comes together, creates the living process. Until the love is activates the the life, it really can't express itself. So, in to start this whole uh, concept going about how. life and love and all move is accepting the reality if we are alive we have to move and if we have to move we have to have the awareness that life and love are can't function well don't function on this dual natured universe without the other so life and love are integral aspects of our very being. The next L is laughter without love is cruel, it's mean, it damages. But laughter with love is joy and happiness and the really the want the desire to live. It's it's it says, yeah, this is great. It's the ability to laugh and love and work out our whatever it is that we're dealing with. The fourth one is labor. Labor without love is drudgery. I've got to go to work. There are too many diapers. Oh, what is this all about anyway? It's just too hard. But labor with love is bliss. It's why you do what you do. It's why I do what I do. It's why a singer sings. It's why a painter paints. It's that inner urge within us that says, yes. This I can do, and you you work twice as it's twenty times, fifty times harder than you would if you were just dragging yourself along, you know, making yourself do what it needs you. And the fifth one is listening without love is empty sound. You it just doesn't mean anything to anybody. You can say the wisest thing in the world. And if a person isn't listening and doesn't want to hear, they don't hear. But listening with uh, with love is understanding. So these five L's for me help to sort of construct a a little bit of a of a foundation for explaining some of the stuff that happens within us. And when we look at that, it seems. The key element that really activates it, and you say this, you say life force is activated by love. Yes. So, two questions on that: Why does Western medicine not really pay attention to it? 
I'll answer the first question. Yeah, yeah, go there and then we'll go to the second. The Native Americans understood this. They understood that love was a healing process. They still talk about it in their and the work that they do and so on. And we've ignored them. You know, we've kind of done some pretty nasty things to our our the people who are our real people who know who are are the people who colonize, you know, started the well, this continent of ours, yours and mine, it's the, this deep understanding that they've had has been that love is the great healer. That's what I understood when I was watching my mother and the elephant. It's that inner aha that you get when you really understand something and you say, well, that, yeah, that I get. So then the second the second is the most important aspect of love is self-love. The idea that we can't love someone or something until we learn to love ourselves. And I think of mindfulness and meditations. For example, when you do loving kindness meditation, which is one of my favorite favorites to really uh -huh. Calm yourself and, and feel at one with the universe. Most often we teach people before they can offer themselves, may I be well, may I be safe, may I be uh, love, to offer it to someone that they care about. And then picture that person offering it to them because it's so hard for so many people to say to themselves, may I have these things, may I be loved, may I be well, may I be safe. Have you found that in your practice that so many of us have such a hard time giving ourselves love. And how do you work with those people to say, you are deserving of this. You deserve to love yourself. Well, you know, when I was, when I was little and we were living in the jungles of North India, I knew I was loved because I, my family, the way things worked with the family, I knew I was loved. There was no question about it. When I went to school, that was whole thrown in, to the wastebasket because I f didn't know what it was, but I was dyslexic and I couldn't read and I couldn't write. So I flunked first grade for one year and then I flunked it the next year. And the teacher said I was, and the kids all thought I was a dumbbell. And I was because I couldn't read and I couldn't write. I had the basic understanding deep within myself about how my family loved me. I knew that. I mean, that was, there wasn't any question about that. But the world, what in the world was going on out here in this world of mine? It was just awful. <laughs> I really, I hated school. It was just terrible. Until I went into third grade and the teacher there saw something in me that the other one had not seen. And so she appointed me class governor. And because I was able to, I was able to talk, I was able to do things. I was able to work with kids, you know, I just couldn't read or write. And so she allowed me to reconnect with the juice when I was nine or yeah, eight or nine years old. And it was that ability to know I was still okay, you know, it was still all right. Of course, I was 93 before I really recognized that I trusted my own voice. But at that eight, nine-year-old age, what did happen, the teacher, one of the things that happened, it was so dramatic, I was since I was the tallest one in the class, because I had flunked the grade before and all that, we had a play that we put on for the whole student body. And the name of the play was the, the, the Frog Jumped Over the Pond. And I was the frog because I could jump over this uh, pad of water. And I was bigger than anybody else. And, and my mother made me a... a green dyed green suit and I walked out onto the in front of the whole student body onto the a platform 
and with great confidence, I knew I could do this. But as I stepped onto the uh, platform, I saw my two older brothers in the first line row of the of the audience, and it threw me off balance. So that instead of landing, instead of bunch jumping over the pond, I landed in it. And so the audience is hysterically laughing. They just thought this was the funniest thing. I'm standing there, my suit is beginning to fade. You know, it was, and I'm crying. I can't move. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm really stuck. The teacher had to come and take me off the platform. So when we got home, my brothers are just, they're telling my mother what happened. And they're laughing, and I'm trying to give them the devil's eye, which they don't pay attention attention to. And so that's going on. And finally, my mother says, all right, boys, now, you've had your fun. What can we do as a family to help Glenny if this ever happens to her in the future, if it ever happens again, that she's humiliated like that in front of so many people so that people then will laugh with her and not at her. And I don't know what the family decided, but I know that what it was, was the answer to what helped me to understand the aspect of myself that really could do this and do it. I can't tell you how many times I've tripped or done something going on to the a stage because with this dyslexia thing, balance is also an issue. But I have always been, since that time, I've always been, been able to come up with something like, oh, I'm such a drama queen or something like that, that would just get the audience so that they, I had them with me not against me. And I could start right into what it was that I was going to be talking about. But my mother was (laughs) such an amazing person. She understood these things. And she understood how she could address them within, within the family. And one of the things I think is so important is for parents to understand how important it is to listen to what it is that their children are saying. And one of the things you, you write about, and I think I'm hearing it there, is this idea that something that gets in the way of self-love is shame. Oh. And so what your mother was trying to work with you on at a very young age and get your brothers to help is to say, let's help Gladys understand, hey, something bad happened, but she can let go of the shame. And that way she can continue to love herself. Does that resonate? Absolutely, absolutely. And then she, the other amazing aspect of that whole thing is what she taught us about just letting go of stuff that doesn't matter. My sister and I were in our 90s and uh, we were talking and we do this kind of a hand movement and then this kind. And finally we said to each other, why do we do that? We're talking along and we talk and we said, we don't know. Well, who was it that did that? And both of us said, Mama. And then we said, why did she do that? And we thought about it and thought about it. Then we both said, oh, Kuchpurwani, which in Hindustani means, oh, it doesn't matter. And we realized that we were in our 90s, but all our lives, this little hand gesture that my mother had taught us because it was what she did was so pivotal that we had done this and lived with it and didn't even realize that we were doing that, that there were things that happened in life that you, you know, somebody says something that's mean. You take it in and you're injured by it. I mean, that hurts. You take it right into your heart or you can just let your hand grasp it, let it drop, and say, oh, it just doesn't matter. Kuchparwani, it just doesn't matter. And I know that that was one of the things that really allowed me to keep 
work walking forward. And importance that we have as parents to listen to what our children are saying is pivotal, but not just as parents. We need to listen to what other people are saying. People can say the wisest things at the most unexpected times. And if we're really listening, we hear them. And when I had that on my list of things to talk about was the Kuch Parnoe. And the other one that you talked about, that because that was life's moving forward. And so we just have to let it go. Oh. Just, just stay in the flow. Let it go. And the other one that stood out to me along those lines was when your sister said to Mother Courtright, or said to you in response to Mother Courtright, huh. I don't have energy for it. As a yeah. beautiful demonstration right. of boundaries in our life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think even to you, when she said that, you thought there was just such power in such a simple statement. I don't have energy for it. So she, yeah. had, she had just let it go. Yeah, yeah. Because my sister was also a great teacher for me because she was able to understand things. She was two years older than I was. So I would get upset and she would just bat her blue eyes at me and and uh, I'd get madder and <laughs> run off and so on. But the whole dynamics of us was actually pointed out to me in that statement because Margaret was, she had a newborn baby and her mother-in-law lived upstairs and the baby was fussy. She, Margaret was working long. The mother-in-law came down and was telling Margaret what she was doing wrong. And Margaret just went on doing what she was doing. And after Miss, uh, her mother-in-law left, I, I was fuming. I was saying, how can you, how can you stand to have her say those things that she said to you? Well, Margaret says, I don't have energy for that. I've, my energy is right here and she hugged her baby. It was that that vision of what she was teaching me still, I had to learn. And, and, and you know, I, I learned it because my kids taught me. So my, my number three son came in one day, he was three years old. He came in and he says, Mama, I know something. And I says, what's that, Bobby? He says, if I make a friend and he makes a friend and he makes a friend, it's going to go all around the world and come back to me. So, of course, he's a humanistic psychology psychologist. I mean, this is when he was three years old, he knew that. You know, children know things and they just brought, say them this. If you listen, you know, it just grabs you. <laughs> yeah. It's, and then my second son. He was seven, I guess. And he came in one day and he says, I wish Jesus was here. And I says, well, I kind of do too. Why are you saying that? And he says, because I have questions. And I says, well, I'm here. Maybe I could help. And he says, but you don't have the answers. And I says, okay, but just try me. So he says, okay. How could God be if he never got started? And I said, oh, <laughs> yes. Well, maybe it's just like a circle. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. And he says, ah, I knew you didn't have the answers. Well, he's a, <laughs> he's a retired Presbyterian minister, you know. When you listen to what people say, it's so amazing and I've got great grandkids that are they're saying the mo most amazing things that uh, now. And these they aren't only ones. I mean, these children that are coming in now, they're still fresh from the divine aspect of ourselves. See, I think when God created us, think whatever God is to a person. When God created us and created the whole earth, and he said to us, human beings, he said, now, you are the ones who have choice. You have 
free will to make different choices and so on. You're the only living aspects on this earth that can do that. So I therefore give you dominance over the earth. You're in charge of the earth. We thought, he said, we human beings who are, are so aware of things, we thought, he said, dominion over the earth. Dominion means you take care of. Dominance means you're, you dominate the earth. So we thought, he said, dominance. And that's not at all. He said, I give you the earth to take care of the earth. You have dominion over the earth, not dominance. And the words sound so similar. And we, in our arrogance, have twisted that around so that we don't know that we have missed the mark. And we're so now we're reaching back for our true humanity, which knows that it's our job to take care of the earth. It's our job to listen to the little ones, but to listen to the older ones too. Old folks have a lot of experience. And for us to totally medicate them into foolishness is very sad. So I think that there are ways in which we begin to, uh, you're doing it, you know, you're reaching out to people who are, older and want to look look at the you know want their experiences to mean something and they do mean something well it's magical because it's it is experience and i i'm a big believer in learning from lived experience and so people that are older than me have that experience and can teach me right on my future path so i find that beautiful and i'm going to go back i think you said it was your third son who brought up that beautiful concept when he was three about connection, because you, you also write, life comes from our connection. Yes. Is supported by our connection and creates connection. We are healthiest and happiest when we're contributing to and drawing from our collective life force. Can you color that one in for us a little? Well, you know, I truly think that when we, well, like my sister and myself and, and mother, Courtright, we can either let ourselves feel the pain that comes from connection sometimes. You know, sometimes there's a person in your life who really doesn't understand you or doesn't understand what you're doing and can be a really hard person to deal with. You can either make them the center of your life, you know, my life is so difficult because of this person or so on. Or you can take that and do what Margaret did, you know, just not have energy for it. It's a kuchpurwani. You let it go. And it's really the constant give and take and receive and, and spend time and, and, you know, the energy has to flow. If it gets stuck someplace, then it dies. If you're stuck someplace and you really, really feel like you can't move, start moving something. Pick up a pencil and doodle. Wiggle your ears, but do something that says to you, ah, I really can move because the body moving allows the soul to move too. It's, we're not separate. So if we can get something going when we're stuck, I don't, you know, find what works for you and then do it. If you have a, a hobby like knitting, pick up a, some two needles and start knitting and do something. But it's a call to your soul to reconnect. And then the thing that, that will help you is that somebody else's light will come along and help you, or somebody will say something, or one of your kids will say something, or you'll trip and fall and you'll end up in the hospital and 
end up with something that's going on and all of a sudden this whole disease process can tell you and teach you what's going on. In tying to that connection and the idea of connecting and loving, am I recalling correctly, did you write something along the lines of, I work to love everybody, but that doesn't mean I like them all. Yeah, that, that's very true. I choose to spend time with the people that I like and that I love. So we, our juice is, feeds each other. And there are people who um, I really, you know, I, we think completely differently. In fact, it's a, a matter of, of really choice. I don't know. You know, when I came up with this whole business with holistic medicine and so on, there were many times when I was called up in front of the Maricopa County Medical Association because I was saying things that they thought was not quite right or actually wrong. And I won't even try to <laughs> conjure up the names that we were called, but it was a time that we were, those of us who were thinking this way, were thinking this way, and, and you know, that happened. So this one time I was called up and, and they reprimanded me and I was ready to leave and I picked up my purse and my keys that were, I had a big keychain, and I started walking out and one of the doctors came up to me and he says to me, now let me tell you something, honey. Well, he pushed a button in me that wasn't, <laughs> should not have been pushed <laughs> because I took my fist and I turned around and I punched him on his shoulder and I said, you will not call me honey. I'm your peer age-wise and professionally, and you will not call me honey. Well, he kind of faded a little bit, but I turned around. My lawyer was leaning against the wall laughing. He was just, he thought it was the funniest thing he'd seen. I came to the office and told my daughter, who was my partner, and she said, oh, mom, you didn't. But I did. But three years later, when I was called up against he was nice as pie, you know. So there are times when you have boundaries. And, you know, really, he called me honey. Ah, that didn't work very well. And so it's the respect that we have for each other needs to be looked at. And I, I just, you know, that triggered something. But I think that otherwise... Some of these things that, that people do are just, they're just not worth, like Margaret, just not worth putting energy. Just let, let them go. Choose where you're going to spend your time and energy, which brings us to our last question uh, respecting your time, Gladys, is in the final secret, you wrote, when we align our energy with life, we create a give and take, sharing relationship with the source. We no longer have to try to make our own energy, which is a losing battle anyway, because energy is not created or destroyed. Instead, we invest energy we have in life. Then when we're running low on what we need, we simply borrow it back. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, we've got all kinds of science that proves that. What does that look like in practice for people? It means that when you're really tired and you think that you can't do anything, find something to do. Sometimes it's to call up somebody who you know you've been thinking about and your call may mean life and death for that person. You never know, you know? It means that you realize that, okay, I'm here and I'm stuck and do I want to stay stuck? And if you want to stay stuck, stay stuck. That's all right. It's your right. It's your choice. But if you don't want to stay stuck, start moving, start connecting with people that help you with your juice, who help you to understand what it is that you can still bring to life. And you're never too old to do that. You know, to think that you at 
96. Well, actually, I had the opportunity of going to Afghanistan when I was, what was that? Oh, I even forget. I was 80, 90 something because I had the opportunity to do it. And it's these opportunities show up and you either accept them or you don't. And it's amazing what what is out there for us to do. You know, maybe when you go to the grocery store, uh, the person who's working at that uh, checkout counter has had a hard day. And maybe she's kind of crabby or something. Well, you know, sometimes a kind word to a stranger is a thing that really helps them and lifts them right up out of where they're stuck. You never know when a, a kind word or a smile or even just a touch makes a difference. It can help another person because life can be hard. And we all know that. In Gladys, we've gone pretty far and wide in the book, deep in some areas. Is there anything that we didn't touch on in our conversation that you want to make sure you get across to the listeners today? Well, yes. You know, the whole idea of just giving up. Don't give up. Don't give up. My dad taught me that. when I can remember being nine years old and doing something, and, and I said, stomped and said, I quit. And my dad looks at me and he says, are you a quitter? Oh, man. <laughs> Those black guys saying to me, are you a quitter? Oh, no, 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 I'm not a quitter. And I go back to doing whatever. But it was such an important thing for me to learn when I was little that there were times when, you know, I gave up. It was just hopeless. Well, no, you're not a quitter. It, it's that idea, you'll find something. There's something there that you find. You may not realize at the time, and then you look back, or you may not. But if you do get yourself moving, life moves. Beautiful. Thanks, team. And so we'll get that in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to talk. 